Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher and Kat Ellinger, author, editor, and film critic. Dracula and his real-life basis are possibly the most famous of the real nightmare human-turned-fictional novel character-turned-film-monster legends. And although the 70s have their fair share of Dracula-based horror movies, including movies that saw Jack Palance take on the role, and a comedy about his dog with Christopher Lee in a non-Hammer movie, the 70s vampire movie scene really belonged to the ladies. At least, that's the case we're going to be making today. The biggest reason is that the most watchable vampires are sexy. And live lesbian vampires? Well, we've already talked about the hunger in season one. You can go back and listen to that. But before we get into all that, let's get a bit of background on another real-life nightmare human, Elizabeth Bathory, and the novella that was inspired by her, Carmilla, which was written before Dracula and possibly inspired Dracula. Just a heads up, if you're not a person who can stomach blood talk, this part of the episode might not be for you, and that is putting that lightly. Cat, cat, <laughs> let's start with Elizabeth, I guess, and then get into Carmella. <laughs> Elizabeth Bathory, I think, is one of the most taboo, transgressive serial killers in history. And it's really interesting when you look at horror as an overall canon, it took so many decades for anyone to even dare to directly tackle Elizabeth Bathory. And then if you look at how she's kind of outnumbered by Dracula. You've basically got Dracula at the top, loads of Dracula. Then you get Carmina, and then there's like a handful of Bathories. And I think she scares people. She just scares people. Don't want to touch anything with like 600 virgins bled to death, like <laughs> even the most hardcore. So the legend is that she bathes in blood, right? And that's how it's, it's a false legend. Yeah, that she it's, it's a myth. She... It's a fairy tale. That didn't actually happen. And there are two really good books written on Bathory. There's the Tony Thorne book and one by Kimberly Craft. And both of those authors actually went into the Hungarian trial manuscripts and all this stuff and and kind of as excavators, I guess. And most of the trial was taken under sort of the same methods that they put witches under trial. So, you know, people weren't <laughs> being particularly honest. But Tony Thorne in particular makes a very good case for the fact that Bathory after a husband Fen Reitz died she was a very powerful very wealthy woman who refused to give up her money her property and so there was a political thing in there to to really mm -hmm. bring her to trial because she lived in a culture where it was served and and serfs weren't treated as human beings so it was a very cruel culture and she learned a lot of her methods from her husband, like keeping these slave girls in order, I guess. So a lot of the mythology came later on. If you look through those trial manuscripts, there are themes that tend to crop up time and time again. Like she seemed to like to use pincers. She used exposure. <laughs> so she would strip girls off and make them stand in water up to their necks overnight and they die of hypothermia. She liked Jesus. that one. I think there was another one with covering them in honey so they get <laughs> like, exposed to ants and insects. But she never bathed in blood. That came later on. And so she's become like a mythological fairy tale mm -hmm. witch who's like, you know, killed all like hundreds and hundreds, six to eight hundred virgins where those two historical books put it at a more 
I don't want to say respectable number because it was still about 40 or 50 people, but which is quite big, but not 800. She's in the Guinness Book of yeah. Records as the most prolific serial killer. Well, we know the accuracy of the Guinness Book yeah. of Records. They really make sure they check <laughs> is, those things it out. It is interesting because if you think about this era and even earlier, if you have someone like Genghis Khan or other, you know, very famous historical figures, torturing, you know, this was just a tactic that was like, you know, you get up, you have breakfast, you torture because that is like part of your control and part of, you know, warfare. But it it does feel very much like because she was a woman, like you're saying, and this will go on for centuries, it was it was a different standard, right? Like she's really just doing what most people with political control did. Yeah. And she was a woman and she refused to give up her position when her husband died and he was called Nadasi the the count Nadasi was like the black knight of hungary he was like Jesus. a war hero who used to like to play football with his uh victims heads so he was oh, a very that old cool chestnut <laughs> <laughs> put them on spikes and and she the well the Bafris at the time or the Nadasis actually at the time they they actually owned more property than the the royal family and the royal family owed them money so Uh. there's a whole political thing but she then just stands i think for this just really taboo figure even in horror that a woman could kill for cruelty and no other reason if you look at the vampire genre sort of overall very early on you get dracula's daughter which is as transgressive as it could be, and a lot of that was cut. Um, you you get early examples, blood and roses, but quite often the the narrative is set up or uh, set up as a woman under a curse. So you right. get Dracula, the sexual predator. He's sexy, loves killing people, just loves it. You know, all the women love it. <laughs> Can't help himself. It's just like that's it. He doesn't need some curse motivation. But if you look at Dracula's daughter, it's all about the universal sequel to Dracula. It's all about how she doesn't want to be a vampire. She wants to be mortal and she sees vampirism as a curse. And it's very much the same thing once you get to The Vampire Lovers, which was the film, the commercial success of Hammer's film in 1970, sort of spearheaded this massive cycle that you got in 70, 71, 72, 73, and then it was... Out comes from from there really, but then within that you get loads of weird different variations on the Carmilla theme, and Hammer then tried Bathory uh, with Countess Dracula, which is also a transgressive mm-hmm. film. But again, it's it's seen as a woman's hysteria or that she can't bear to be aging. So mm-hmm. when you get to Daughters of Darkness is Bathory. She's a woman who just likes killing people. She's really cruel. She just loves it. She's good at it. She stalks them. She (laughs) takes her time. And that is like so taboo to do that because we often think of women in genre as either, and, and I'm being simplistic now, but either as victims or kind of forced into doing something. Yeah. Whereas Bathory, she's just like, I'm rich. I don't particularly like people very much. I'm I'm going to kill them. And I think that freaks people out. Even now, we're not seeing any Bathory. Like, yeah. Where are the Bathory films? Well, actually, I looked that up because I was curious about that. I was like, there have to be Bathory there's films. There have to be. Any. And there, there's hardly any. And the ones they are, they either fall onto the, like, it's a supernatural thing. She was possessed, whatever. But there is one where they try to make excuses for her. We're like, oh, she was abused as a child <laughs> and in a loveless marriage. And you're like, she just, like, fucking people up. Like, yeah, no, on. One, no one's doing that to Dracula. No one's, no. like, yeah. psychoanalyzing Vlad the Impaler no. in like the 1300s or whatever century he was. I do seem to remember American Horror Story having at least a character that is very clearly codified. That's as a Lady Gaga's character in Hotel yeah. is uh, yeah. is Which the I Countess. Liked, yeah. Yes, yes. Now what we mentioned uh, Carmilla, and we should probably just kind of briefly get into that because it's very much the basis that most people use for the sexy vampire. Cat, uh, what's what's that one? So Sheridan the Fanny's Carmina, which was inspired by Coleridge's poem Christabel which came out of the romantic era predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 to 27 years and it's a romantic very ambiguous vampire tale of a young woman who infiltrates this family you've got a lonely young girl and her father 
and it turns out that this this young woman might not actually be a young woman she might be an age-old vampire and it's it's very different to although bram stoker was influenced by it's very different to the dracula story because it has it's written in a lot of it first person narrative in this kind of giddy tone of a weird jane austen novel about this girl who becomes obsessed with this mysterious girl, but she's having these dreams and this cat is biting her in her sleep. And and <laughs> it's just such a wonderful novella, just such a wonderful novella. For some reason, it outside of... Um, so Carl Dreyer did Vampire, which is mm-hmm. supposed to be inspired by Carmina, but it's not really anything to do with Carmina. He <laughs> deleted all of the lesbian overtones, right, for Vampire. Yeah. You know, and, and then you've got Blood and Roses and you've got the 1964's Crypt of the Vampire, which do riffs on Carmina, but it was only Hammer with the Vampire Lovers, Roy Ward Baker's 1970 film with Ingrid Pitt and Madeline Smith that actually tried to faithfully tackle that that story. And I think even though that one's a little bit over-sensationalized, it is quite a faithful interpretation. But that really then flipped the vampire genre on its head because suddenly everyone was like, okay, there's another vampire book. Let's just make <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that <laughs> 150 years ago that we've been ignoring. And yeah, let's just make all these lesbian fat and they're lesbians so we can get loads of nudity in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so you just had this mad cycle that lasted about four years of riffs on LaFanny's book, which is wonderful because I love, I love Carmina. And I absolutely yeah. love that cycle. I think it gets underestimated in mainstream horror fandom because there is this overemphasis on Dracula and even within the kind of Hammer fandom, you find a, a subset of male fans who are very resistant to the vampire lovers and Countess Dracula specifically because they're like, these films are new and, and they don't like the fact that vamp- the vampire lovers kind of only has Peter Cushing in a few scenes and the rest of it is women. So once they get over <laughs> sort of Ingrid Pitt and Madeline Smith's breasts, they think the but, film yeah. is entirely worthless. And I'm like, this film was a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a, a total revolution. In 71, you get Stephanie Rothman. So you, it's one of the first times you have a woman director yeah. taking on Carmilla with uh, The Velvet Vampire, which is a very like acid-tongued, pop art desert like if burning man had a lot of vampires it would basically be the velvet vampire so we really struggled with um because we always on this podcast pick two films and when it came to this topic which excited becky and i so much especially for daughters of darkness it was like oh my god there's like six films we could actually pair with it that go together so yeah, so well it was really challenging the Black bride two. is another one yeah which is like an allegory of uh, Francoist patriarchal Spain. It's like a political film. That's oh, just so good, so good. That's oh, another man. one that gets really misunderstood. And that one riffs off Carmina. I mean, that whole subsection. You've got Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos, and what I love mm-hmm. about that—that's like an almost feminist rewriting of Bram Stoker's because he uses characters from Bram Stoker, but they're all women. And this mm-hmm. is a Dracula who sunbathes in a white bikini and works in a strip club. And the Jonathan Harker figure is a woman. And it's just, and it's the same with Velvet Vampire. A lot of the female vampires walked in the sun. You mm-hmm. know, the Carmina in Velvet Vampire lives in the desert, drives around in a Jeep, <laughs> goes to art yeah, galleries. Like Joshua tree or something <laughs> like that. It's amazing. Well, I mean, it, it's difficult to say that um, Daughters of Darkness is one of the most unique because they all seem to be incredibly unique, but it is definitely one of the more enduring and one of the most yeah. um, recognized of the genre. It's 
so stunning. And I mean, the Europeans were really killing it in the late 60s and early 70s with these quiet, disturbing little movies that made sure to pack seats with artistic <laughs> erotica. And uh, the Daughters of Darkness tagline is literally an erotic nightmare of vampire lust. But what really sold me is, is John Dealman seducing maple syrup porn queen Valerie. And it is going to get gothic. <laughs> now, Kat, as we were researching, almost everybody cites you as the source of everything because you wrote a book about Daughters Which of Darkness. It's good. It's like you, so it's you and Camille Paglia. Those were the two, which, I mean, that puts you in some pretty great company. Yeah, <laughs> loves it. She outseed In fact, yeah. I quoted Paglia and quoted Sexual Persona in my own book because, you know, she really got on board with that film. Very early, and, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was always been fascinating. I've run a podcast called Daughters of Darkness. You know, I just absolutely love that film. Wrote a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> podcast Daughters Do you have a tattoo that's related no, to No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. It's been planted that, now. It comes up a lot on the podcast with guests and myself when we love a film. Like, what would the tattoo be? Like, hypothetically. I have Ingrid Pitt. Oh, so, you do? Okay, yeah, okay. All in, on I mean, the that's inside adjacent. of my forearm. So I've got Ingrid. Yeah. <laughs> can you just, for people who may not have seen this yet, give us a little plot description, just a brief one of what people can expect going into this. Daughters of Darkness, it's got the honeymoon triangle, which is a key feature in some of these lesbian vampire films, where you have a young couple, they're travelling to Ostend on their honeymoon, they've married in secret, Valerie and Stefan, played by the wonderful John Carlin and Danielle Wime. And I got to interview Wime for my book, and she's just fabulous. She's just she's a Canadian best. legend. She's mm-hmm. so lovely. Yeah. And they get to this hotel that's off season, and Valerie wants to meet Stefan's mother, who's back in the UK, but he's being cagey. So he's like, let's stay here. And they get two more guests to the hotel. One of them is this mysterious Countess Bathory and her assistant Alona by Dauphine Serig and uh, Andrea Rao. And Bathory becomes very interested in the couple and starts to play power games in between them. Uh, the hotel concierge thinks he met Bathory 40 years before, but he couldn't have possibly. That must have been her mother because she hasn't aged. <laughs> And he's just, I love how gobsmacked he yeah. is. Like he's really just genuinely trying to figure it out, which I love the idea that you have that you don't often get to see that in vampire movies unless it's someone who kind of worshipped them previously, yeah. but he's just trying to figure out what the hell is going yeah, on. He's like, it's great. He's, he's the viewer. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the dumber version of us viewers. Um, in terms of a vampire film, though, I think it resists every piece of formula and cliche and there's no folklore, there's no how to destroy mm-hmm. Bathory, there's no fangs there. All the mm-hmm. violence in it is human violence. And it's just a really incredible take. Or, I mean, obviously, it's supernatural because, you know, there are people that recognize her from years before. But it's never, ever stated what the cause of it, that is. It's just such a, a fantastic original film and I think anyone coming into it has to have an open mind and not expect the fangs and the coffins and all that because Harry Kummel wasn't out to do that he actually made the film out of frustration because he was he worked as a film critic and he started making films he made this wonderful black and white film called uh, Monshaw Howarden which is also about a mysterious couple of women and I won't give any spoilers for that because you know, it's it's quite rare. But he made that and he didn't like the snobby sort of establishment in, in Belgium, in the Belgium sort of elite circle that really dismissed him. So when he came to make Daughters of Darkness, he just said he wanted to make something obscene, like really erotic, just commercial. So he basically said that he wanted to make a film that would just have as many people fuck as possible. That's mm-hmm. all he wanted, he did it. which he accomplished. That's correct, <laughs> and like, and and different like variations on yeah. a theme, <laughs> you know, it's, different it's kind of fucking yeah. metaphorically and and other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he said to me though because I've interviewed him twice actually. I interviewed him for the book, and then I interviewed him at Fantastic Fest when they previewed mm-hmm. the thing. Like interviewed him as a like a panel, 
thing. And he said he'd never read Carmina at that point. But what he did was he found like a magazine that had an article on Bathory. And so his original idea was to make a historical Bathory film. But the producers, Cinepix being part of, like, it, there's so many producers in this. There's, like, about eight producers. Cinepix is, the, Cinepix is why was, we have that's what, Canadian. Yeah, that's why Danielle's yeah. in it. There's American Many, yeah. which is why John Carlin was in it. You know, there's just many from all over. And they were like, we can't afford this. So he said, well, vampires are immortal. And so why don't we just have them now? But what do we... And I said to him, you know, what about the look of the vampires, though? And he said... Well, what are immortal sort of people to us? They're the silver screen people. So they went with Marlena Dietrich and Louise Brooks. That was like a conscious thing um, for their immortality. I mean, that's how it ended up, just budgetary. He wanted to make this big thing with like 600 virgins. And, <laughs> um, and... Don't we all, though? <laughs> Can you imagine that casting call? <laughs> But I love it the way it turned out because it's a very, very intimate film. I think the one thing that does mark a lot of these lesbian vampire ones out, so Velvet Vampire, Blood Spatter Bride, Vampires, Lesbos, is they were all very low-budget films and couldn't afford period sets. And mm-hmm. so what you got in that was this organic sort of revolution. of the. It's, it's almost like we got to 1970, and outside of a very few exceptions like blood and roses or dracula's daughter somebody realized hang on vampires can live forever so why are they always in the 1800s <laughs> it is a logistical conclusion now. you think someone would have come to earlier but um, i love what you're you're saying about the sets cat because i think that is what sets this film apart from the others that you mentioned um, that european setting and keep in mind as a production this is a belgian french west german u.s canadian copro yeah um cinepix for our listeners who maybe recognized that name will eventually do ilsa she wolf of the ss which is an episode we did <laughs> last season if you want to rewind a bit but um you know most of this is set in ostend in a hotel to my understanding that's on the sea and still operational um, but parts of it are in Bruges, yeah. which I love seeing Bruges on film. It's pretty unusual. Um, and I'm someone who, like, I when I was doing my art history uh, degree, really got into Flemish art. Um, like, I, I really feel an interest in Flemish culture, which is something that only an asshole would ever say. <laughs> I feel like that's the weirdest <laughs> statement. I always, like, keep it in, like, just when I go to see, even, like, you know, national collections of art, I, I just go towards the Hans Memlings or the really gross gothicness that Belgium did so well, and specifically the Flemish culture in Belgium. You can picture, like, the medieval paintings, and a lot of these paintings have these incredible torture scenes and distorted bodies. And to me, that's so intrinsic to what's that undercurrent that's in Daughters of the Darkness, because it's very modern. She's wearing beautiful modern clothing, um, very reminiscent of her prior career in, like, something at last year at Marion Bad. She's just so modern, as is the character Valerie, and yet it's really set in this the dankness of somewhere like Bruges, which is you just feel the damp and you feel the creep and you feel the rodents. And you know this is a place where the plague probably still exists in some corner. This might it also feels almost timeless because even though it is a movie in the 70s, you're seeing having the styling of Louise Brooks and Marlena Dietrich is also like a very much, oh, what time am I in? And then because everything is so empty and you're in this very classic architecture, there's something very all over the place about the setting that you're in. So you're like, oh, this really could be any time, any place. Um, and something I really like about Dracula that I think people are starting to figure out in the vampire story itself is that the vampire is always out of time yeah. because no matter where you set them, they are always going to have to be catching up with whatever time they're in, especially if they've been asleep or they've been doing something else or they're mm-hmm. showing up in a new place they haven't been to for 40 years because it's still the same for them, right? It's just now they're having to catch up. And I think that's always such an interesting idea to play with and they definitely play with the timelessness in that same way here. Yeah, it is timeless. And and I think for Bathory, I mean, Kumal said to me, she's bored. She's just this bored aristocrat <laughs> who oh, spent yeah. <laughs> his whole lifetime sort of traveling around Europe, going to these grand hotels. She has a fantastic car. When she gets to Ostend, it's sort of crumbling and it's like, you know, the old world is going, but it's also still there. And she is part of that old world, but she's also Mm -hmm. 
in the modern world and out of step with it. And she's tired. That's what he said. She's just very tired. She's got ennui. It <laughs> seems like a very yeah. French thing. Vampiric yeah, ennui. Yeah, she's got That's ennui. relatable. Sangui. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's relatable during a pandemic when we've all been trapped for a bit. And uh, yeah. So we don't, I have, do want to talk we don't about... have ennui in Britain. And I don't think the Americans have ennui. It's just like a, more of a mainland hmm. Europe thing. <laughs> you know, we're not allowed to. Yeah, it's very, very existential, very yeah, Kierkegaard. That makes sense. Yeah, we yeah. talked about Cemetery Man and he's suffering from Zomnui. So yeah. I get it. Yes. <laughs> That could be a whole podcast subject on we and horror. <laughs> I do want to talk, though, about her introduction. And because the first shot you see her in with the veil and the lips, that is one of the most beautiful introductions of a character I think I've seen, mm-hmm. both visually and like, oh, I know exactly who that human being is. Like, it's fabulous. Dauphine, because Harry just gave us so much. Like He basically said he wouldn't have made the film if she hadn't agreed to be in it. And the rest of the cast he was given and he didn't think very much about them. And he's <laughs> quite Fair. public of it. Yeah, he, he was basically given John Carlin and he was given Danielle Wimey and he who we called Miss Canada. And um <laughs> he but he only wanted Dauphine, he absolutely worshipped her. So he gave her like so much autonomy in the role to just do whatever she wanted to do. And yeah. um he, he did say to me, and it's really bitchy, but I, I can't remember if I put this in my book or not, but he's he's out there saying it elsewhere. When he got the headshot for John Carlin, he was nearly 40 when he did that film. He's like, he didn't look anything like his picture. I was really shocked. He's like, really, he's like old and haggard looking. <laughs> like, to be fair, when he first took his his sunglasses off, I was like eye bags. <laughs> it was it was very yeah. He impressive. looks like he's been on a bender. Yeah, which yeah, he, he has to be like some twenty something. But I think he pulls it off, and he pulls the accent yeah, yeah. off. You know, considering he's from New York, he's got this vague European yeah. accent. I think he's great, but unfortunately, Harry didn't. And um, but with Dauphine, he was let her develop the character. So she studied. The uh, she studied Shanghai Express, Marlene Dietrich mm. over. I was going to say it's almost shot for shot the like the revelation of that. Yeah, character. and the walk she's got yeah. that Marlene walk when she sort of walks with very determined to the cat comes out of the car, and you see the veil with this determined sort of walk into the hotel, and it's just incredible. All the mannerisms, her intonation, she's just, yeah, so much went into that character. It's captivating. And I'm glad you're bringing this up with Shanghai Express because when I was looking at Kumal's, you know, work prior, I know that he directed a documentary on uh, Joseph von Sternberg. So, you know, watching the film, I didn't know that afterwards finding that out i'm like oh there's like shot for shot of like some of the von sterbergs going back to the silent era even and so having these references to someone like louise brooks who is very much still living in 1971 but exceptionally undervalued and i don't want to say washed up but kind of she wasn't the famous icon in 71 that she is today in 2021 so it's so interesting seeing andrea rao's haircut because that was unusual like you get the Sid Charisse haircut in Singing in the Rain which is an homage to Louise Brooks but it's still very underground so he's really mining you know those German emigres or Austrian emigres and how they defined Hollywood in the 1930s um, and into the 1940s and putting that in his film and I think it's why it feels so ageless is it's like you're watching a classical Hollywood film from the 30s or 40s but then there's this 70s um, counterculture vibe. And then also it harkens back to, you know, a time, a pre-cinema time in Europe. There's something yeah. I kind of want to put the the bug in people's ear of as we kind of go through the 70s, uh, the year of 71, is that there really is a major reflection going on of classic Hollywood. We're going to be looking at a movie called What's uh, What's the Matter with Helen coming up in a few episodes where they're also referencing Jean Harlow, like a lot of really classic, a Shirley Temple, classic Hollywood, uh, Hollywood actresses. And we're seeing a lot of that. And I mean, we have to wait till 75 for Day of the Locust for them to like really go hard at Hollywood in yeah. the 30s. But uh, but it's interesting to see it's sort of that reflection is starting here because the, as we know, the studio system was starting to crumble at this point. Yeah, I mean, Harry was or is still a real admirer of that, that timeless quality, glamorous mm. women. He's just really into that. And so it was definitely conscious. 
And you've got to think by the 60s and 70s, you had people that were grown up on the more golden era stuff, then coming of age and mm -hmm. making their own films and remaking it or trying to recreate it, but with, with 70s budgets and 70s <laughs> actors. So you get a lot of weird hybrid sort of stuff in that. Absolutely. But in terms of gothic, um, Daughters of Darkness owes much more to that, to classic Hollywood and things like that, than it really does to something than like Hammer. Um, because mm -hmm. that wasn't where ha Harry wasn't taking his, his points from that. It's also, I've argued in my book, and I'm obsessed with the Fantastique, I wouldn't even say it was a horror film. It's a Fantastique film where hmm. the Fantastique is slightly different to horror in that it's more ambiguous. It's uh, There's a book by a guy called Todorov where he describes it as that moment of hesitation when you're not quite sure. And that's what Harry Kummel does with Daughters of Darkness. You're never quite sure. It's that moment of hesitation. Could this be supernatural? Could it be something else? I don't know much about Flemish Fantastique. I only know about the French set of it, but I've since discovered there is a whole Flemish set, but unfortunately a lot of it hasn't been translated. It's drawing from that tradition rather than a Bram Stoker sort of British Gothic tradition, which is more about formality and... Um, it's much more dreamlike in that way, like a lot of Euro cult film is. And it doesn't spell things out to the audience, which is one of the things I really love about it. Is it and I love Hammer. You know, I've written so much about Hammer over the years. Um, but with Hammer, it's just this very kind of English Gothic formula of, you know, vampire comes up, Van Helsing figure tells you how to defeat the vampire. You know, a couple of people get turned, vampire gets staked. You don't get any of that in Daughters of Darkness because Harry Kummel was not looking at that at all for inspiration. He was drawing from a very different tradition, like a Flemish tradition of not yeah. outright horror. And there's barely any blood in the film either, which is really interesting. Which is funny because like this film is also just for our uh, listeners, ease, has a lot of other names. Like, I don't even think the version that I initially watched, which was pre-Restoration, I do want to ask you about that cat, although we do have to yeah. get to our next <laughs> film soon, but I have so much I want to ask you about this film. Um, You know, Red Lips was one yeah. of the foreign titles, Children of the Night, Blood on the Lips. So it's funny that there's no actual blood in this film. I love how you anchored this around Delphine because she's someone who's become very important to this podcast and someone who's very important to the show that this podcast is adjacent to because we do talk about Jean Dielman Chantal Ackerman's, you know, my God, masterpiece Amazing. of Belgian cinema. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's it's it, in itself. I've always argued that Jean Dielman is um, a horror film, <laughs> really at its heart. But she's such a fairy tale character by '71 because I think of films like she had done in the past, prior leading up to this, something like you know Jacques Demy's. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a very dark <laughs> fairy godmother. She's. Yeah, she's a fairy godmother in this film about a daughter who doesn't want to marry her father and then has to rely on this donkey that craps out jewels. <laughs> just see it. I'm just, I don't wanna... But then, you know, going even further back with her work with Buñuel, her work with um, her partner, Alain René, she was always a fairy tale figure. So I think Kumel just instills the overt gothicness to what she was already building upon added to her... Um, very famed and important feminism at a time in France when it wasn't cool. Yeah, I mean, at the time, she was signing the the pro-abortion treaty very Yeah, the Agnes Farda. Yeah. Coming out in France and speaking about abortion. The, the 343, yeah, which was and um, 343 women admitting to an illegal so abortion if, in France. So if she was going to be a vampire, she was going to be always going to be a feminist vampire. And although Harry Kummel is kind of anti-identity politics and he's quite bristly, he has so much respect for Dalphine and will just admit, you know, the film wouldn't have been what it was without her. Um, and it was René, actually, that talked her into doing it. It was Ren Alan René mm -hmm. said Harry was friends with Alan and Alan was really into comic books and stuff and he basically talked her into doing it. And... Uh, she loved it, apparently. She absolutely loved the role. But she is like Shan Dillman in it, because like every 
mannerism, mm-hmm. like John dealing with three hours of a woman washing a bathtub and cutting up to But potatoes. somehow you just can't, you're just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Like she's just cutting some yeah. carrots and you just can't. And she brings the same thing to the to the vampire film. And there was a really interesting essay by Bonnie Zimmerman, which I think was written in the early 80s. I don't know if you guys came across that one. Mm-mm. But that was the first one Mm-mm. to try and reinforce it as a feminist film. She was one of the first ones to say that as a female vampire, uh, Dauphine, she's not sexualized. She's a mature woman. And she uses a different approach to... to in the, well, she does use a bit of sexuality on Stefan because she recognizes they are the same. There's this weird class sort of entitlement that they share. That so scene she, is one of the greatest things where he's she's perched over him and they're both getting off on talking about horrible torture techniques. Yeah. It's, it's glorious and, and horrifying. It, but you live it. You yeah. live it through through Valerie and you live it through the way they're really getting off on it and you don't see a single thing. It's absolute genius. She kidnapped young girls and kept them chained to give blood. Blood for her to bathe in and drink. No. But she uses Alona as a sort of sexual predator part and she plays mother. Mm -hmm. So she becomes the consuming mother in it and she uses smiles and tenderness. And apparently that was Dalphine. She said, I want to play this part all smiles. I don't want to show any aggression. (laughs) Um, So she's so not, but the way she touches Valerie, it's just sickly. It's just so perverse. But then, spoiler alert, at the end, you watch Valerie has picked up all of that as she starts yeah. doing her own little predatory <laughs> thing at the end. And, you know, but the thing is, like, if I was to meet someone like Valerie speaking as she was speaking on uh, at, at some sort of resort, I'd be like, sorry, man, you can buy my drinks, but I'm gone. <laughs> you can tell, spin your yarn, tell me your story. But I'm out. <laughs> what I think is interesting, I just this is the last point before we go, is one of the big villains on this who actually looks dead, and this just might have been the restoration, but isn't, is the mother character. And I will Mandra. be dressing up as the mother character for <laughs> Halloween because that is now one of my favorite characters of And all time. I will be the only person on Instagram that acknowledges Becky for what she's dressed <laughs> up you. as because no one's going to well, get Well, I was thinking reference. about dressing up Ginger Ruffers as Elizabeth, but that's okay. okay. Give her give her a little veil, see if it stays on her head. Um, but... See, mother was an afterthought. They just, Harry just came up with that later on. God, that's I love mother. Just to give Stefan because Stefan is so shady. I mean, we're talking about Bathory and, you know, she's a pre... But the real villain in it is Stefan because he's yeah. just a, a wife-beating shithead. He's a nasty, yeah. sadistic little pig and very controlling. And so it does use a bluebeard sort of framework as well with Valerie as this very naive young woman who's right. just got married and it's her husband. Well, even in the very opening where she says, Tell me, do you love me? Don't you know? I want you to say it. And you're like, okay, yeah. is this a sick game you're playing or do you like, what is it? But then also he's willing to give up possibly this arrangement he has with mother for her because he's done something very foolish. Valerie. Oh. Well, you see, Valerie and I were married three days ago in Switzerland. Nice surprise. I'm glad you're taking it so well. As always. I was wrong after all. What you did wasn't foolish, Stefan. It was merely unrealistic. But you're talking about the ambiguity, and this is all yeah. ambiguity in relationships. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's really fascinating. They just thought, we'll just stick that in to make it even more, you know, <laughs> weirder. Possibly <laughs> part of this ring of aristocrats who abuse women or every. Yeah, yeah, it's so like, what is his own bathroom, really? Madame Chilton or whatever it is. But yeah, uh, yeah and in the restoration, that scene looks so colourful. So, so yes. colourful. And Harry uses like flowers all the way through to sort of as motifs for different things. And you've got all these like pink flowers in this weird conservatory. And the, yeah, um, I've seen that film so many times and then seeing the restoration and the colours, it just blew my mind. It's like watching it for the first time. Okay, well, I think that's just about everything for this segment. We need to move along to our next, which let me tell you, we're going to have words about as well. Because this one, the director was offered Jaws 2 and was booked on Jaws 2. We're going to talk about what happened there based on making the next film we're going to talk about. It's Let's Scare Jessica to Death coming up after the break. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The best gaslight horror movies are the ones that keep the audience as off balance as their protagonist, which makes for intriguing and unsettling watching for us as we try to figure out what the hell is going on. Originally written off as a low-budget B-movie, Let's Scare Jessica to Death did exactly what its title proposed to a number of young people who saw it on TV in the late 70s and early 80s, giving it a legendary post-theatrical life. Did we dream this movie with the weird camera angles on local yokels surrounding the hearse and jeering at those inside, or did you see it too? It's also a movie that could have only been made in the early 70s. As we're going to explore further in this episode and in this season, 71 is quite possibly one of the most cynical years in film history, and Jessica is just as much a product of the death of the optimism of hippie culture as any other film. In fact, an original draft was titled It Drinks Hippie Blood. Alicia, before we go too far, what's a brief plot summary of Let's Scare Jessica to Death? I saved the easy movie summary for you. <laughs> Here you go. Yeah. You did emphasize brief because I think you know how hard yeah. that is for me. <laughs> Jessica is a character played by uh, Zora Lampert, in, who we're going to talk about. This role is phenomenal. And she's recently released from what would be called in the early 70s a mental institution for kind of an undisclosed uh, mental illness. She's brought to the country um, from New York City by her husband and their mutual friend. They've bought this kind of gorgeous country house that's very dilapidated, and they're going to renovate it and live there. He's an up, he, he's a uh, musician in the Philharmonic, uh, and he's given up his career of playing basically to take his wife away and hopefully she recuperates at this house. They get there and they find um, this kind of hippie girl named Emily has been uh, squatting there for quite some time. And instead of kicking her out, they kind of invite her to stay and become part of their post-hippie commune. They make dinners together. You know, they're going to sell a lot of the antiques that they find in the house. But they find a photograph of the attic and one of the women, um, this character that has drowned on her wedding day or the day before her wedding day in 1880, a 20-year-old, looks exactly like the modern Emily. So, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say clearly Emily's a vampire. (laughs) Or is she? Or is she? (laughs) Who is she, though? Or is she? Yeah. Yeah. Or is she? When when they go into town, um, and they're already driving a hearse, like you mentioned, because they're hippies. You know, a lot of the townspeople, they make this joke that they look like the the last survivors of the Civil War because they're all like old men. There's no women at all, almost. I think there's not a single woman. I think it's all men. They're all bandaged on their necks. They all have weird injuries, um, which are eventually revealed to be bites, of course. So Jessica is very, very unnerved and very upset, but she can't communicate her suspicions or when she sees, you know, bodies cropping up or when, you know, she sees people in the distance because she thinks they'll think she's crazy again. And in fact, that is what happens, even though there's something um, very dark and very torrid happening in this supposedly quaint town. Was that brief <laughs> Medium. It's not an easy one because it is one of those no. things where it's like, what is going on? And there's still debates on whether or not the vampires are real. Is it all in her head? This is one of the few movies I think that uses voiceover to excellent, excellent effect. It yeah. does. Yeah. And it starts with, it, it's one of those films that starts up with um, everything after the initial sequence is a flashback. You know, it's one of those sort of sunset boulevard where she's like, I'm not sure if this could have really happened. I can't believe it. And then you go back and see how she got to that point. 
which I think I thought was quite effective. This is a first time director, John D. Hancock, who I know Kat, you know, quite a bit about and really an independent. Eventually, this is acquired by Paramount, which is huge. Uh, and they really exploit it to great effect. And it does quite well at the box office. But this is a first time filmmaker who uh, kind of came out of theatre. Off Broadway. Really, I'm this impressed. This is what you get. If yeah. you get someone off Broadway and give them a horror film. He'd done <laughs> this short film before that called Sticky My Fingers, Fleet My Feet, which got nominated what? for an Oscar. Right. <laughs> right. He's an Oscar nominee. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This is and all coming together. And he was part, being seen as part of New Hollywood. You know, he'd done theatre for a decade. And a lot of the actors and Jessica are people that he knew from the theatre, which is why the theatre, the, the, just in fact, everyone in the main cast is somebody that he'd worked with or knew. Zora Lampert had been working with people like Anne Bancroft on the stage, you know. Yeah. So totally sort of untypical cast for horror as well from around that period where you had very young, inexperienced actors looking to break into film, going into genre film. You've got these like really experienced stage actors that come from this counterculture movement in theatre. And John Hancock's sort of pitched as the the bright new thing, part of New Hollywood. And then he can't get another film. And I think it was Joseph Mankiewicz's daughter had put the producer of Jessica, he was making um, the original film, It Drinks Hippie Blood, which is about a monster mm-hmm. that that's that basically like comedy, yeah, right? comedy horror that terrorizes a group of hippies in an old house in New England. That was the original concept. So it brought John Hancock onto that. And because he wasn't getting anything else, he was like, okay, you know, I can work with this. But then he gets to it and he's like, I'll do it if I can rewrite the script. Um, And so his main inspiration for this was The Haunting. So it's very female gothic by design because that was inspired by Shirley Jackson. And if you go back and watch uh, the Robert Wise film, that uses voiceover. There's so many similarities. Well, you have a a young woman who's, who's not come out of a mental institution, but she's very vulnerable she's she's got it sort of suggested she has mental health problems she, her sister's very controlling and she goes to this house that may or may not be haunted you know it's this similar thing so we use that he also grew up on a farm in kansas i think and so he drew in a lot of the things that scared him as a child, which I love. He grew up in an apple orchard. Yeah, so the apple orchard. There's a lot of apples and, and in this stuff film. Because he said there was just so many sort of spooky things in his childhood, sort of being out in the middle of nowhere. And he comes up with Jessica, which is just such a, even surmising it like with your plot, people are like, well, you're like, it's a, well, it's a vampire film, but it's kind of not a vampire film. It's, um, they're kind of ghosts. It's kind of gaslight. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yet, yet it's very Carmilla. Mm. There's a lot of the elements of Carmilla that someone like Carl Theodore Dreyer, you know, would remove yeah. from vampire, from vampire. So it's almost like um, Hancock is doubling down on the parts of the Carmilla uh, story that are not as vampiric but make it what it is i think you've also got a big influence from the yellow wallpaper the short story in that which oh, probably comes i never thought it probably that. comes via shirley jackson via the haunting though yes. i don't i don't I've, yes. I've read extensive interviews of hancock and he never mentions yellow wallpaper but if that is a short story about a woman who imagines or or there may be something in the wallpaper and she's just come out of an asylum and there may be Mm -hmm. something in the wallpaper in this room she starts to obsess about it but it is and and the thing is the yellow wallpaper has never been successfully filmed and I hate to say this but I saw a new version of it recently and it just doesn't it's just really hard to translate Jessica Mm -hmm. is the closest you get to the yellow wallpaper on film without it intentionally being... This is blowing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) What you're saying right now. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I we grew, I took a gothic course. I think everyone's taking a gothic literature course no, at some point. No, just if you're a you. Fan of horror, but, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I specialize in Flemish art and gothic <laughs> literature, if you want to get a sense of my undergrad experience. And, you know, we read that story and it was one of my favorites. And then I haven't thought about it in so long. And I think because you're right, Kat, it hasn't been successfully adapted. And so much of how gothic survives in our, um, you know, communal culture is through film and if it hasn't been adapted something like the italian for instance and yeah. the monk like oh my god don't the monk. i'm not i'm like huge... the world champion so of the monk <laughs> Off, offline and not we're going to talk about how we get the monk or like it'll be like the mink it'll be, but it sounds like the mink we need a different kind of poster but uh you know if, if they don't get adapted in something really grandiose like the universal monsters series of the 30s and 40s or you know bram stoker's dracula then they're they're not remembered yeah. they're not gothic and i, I think know. female gothic as well is like um going back to what we were saying about the kind of revolution in female vampires i think in the 70s you did see some of it was kind of drawing from the rise of feminism but some of it was a response to feminism in that all those fears of being castrated by women were kind of coming up so filmmakers were started using it a lot, and you saw female revenge genres. You saw the first rate revenge films. Yeah. You saw female vampires, and it became very female orientated in the seventies. Um, but prior to that, when you look at gothic films specifically, it's it's largely about male monsters in the classic period, with very few exceptions outside of Italian gothic. I'd say Italian gothic is a whole different thing. I'm not going to go down that road, mm -hmm. but they had Barbara Steele, mm -hmm. so they were they were cool. Um, <laughs> but in terms of like female gothic, so things like Carmina, the Yellow Wallpaper, the work of Shirley Jackson, you know, things like that. Turn of the Screw, Henry James was another big influence on Jessica, which again is like very female centric, very ambiguous. You saw so little of that outside of The Innocence, The Haunting. There's like a few films that do that. Um, and I think it's because it's that feminine aspect of it. It's just seen as, ugh, you know, what interests me about Gothic as a genre is you see more of that in not horror Gothic. So you saw the massive 40 cycle of Gothic melodrama, Rebecca, Wuthering Heights, Bluebeard, you know, oh, but not yeah. genre, you know. So, okay, they can have it in melodrama and kind of ambiguous thriller sort of thing, you know. But not, yeah. no, no, horror is about monsters. It's about male monsters. It's about, so it, Jessica really is a weird film because it doesn't really fit into the lesbian vampire cycle so much. Um, and it does seem to belong to a completely different genre, completely different era. And it recalls something like The Innocents, where again, you have, Deborah Carr in that as this governess who thinks these kids may or may not be possessed by a ghost and it's all very mm. and that's what interested John Hancock he wasn't interested in mainstream horror that was being made at the time he wasn't necessarily a genre fan but then he didn't feel above genre either he was just he was looking for an interesting story and that is what interested him this woman's psyche and so it's so unique like even within that canon of lesbian vampires which tends to be very unique it's like i always stick it in with this weird pool and i don't even know if you could call them a genre but there's like this handful of american independent films that all seem to have come out of like first-time directors or one-time oddities there's carnival of souls mm. there's dementia oh, yeah. from 1955 there's let's go messiah of evil yeah, i was just and, thinking and, this is so yeah. similar to messiah of evil it's yeah. like i don't know what you'd call those films but because yeah, they're all different but you're right they've all got there. this really strange aura and i don't know what it is it's something to do with the cultural climate and i don't know it's like you could probably get velvet vampire in there on the outside but the core ones yeah. are just so, it's like, who are these people? And they're all like people that made like one film or they just made like one horror yeah. film. And yeah. it's like, yeah, they're not, nobody outside of Stephen Frower wrote about them in Nightmare USA. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, if I ever talk about them, I say like Nightmare USA films, but that's not really what they are because there's a lot of other films in that book that don't fall into that category, but. 
don't know if it was what they were smoking or <laughs> acid they were taking <laughs> off. I, I mean, my first thought was it was the acid yeah. they were taking. <laughs> well, I but... think what, what you're kind of hitting at is all of these are very dreamy, surrealist. And a part of it is they all, with the exception of Carnival of Souls, all sort of have this Vaseline on the lens, uh, ambiguous mm. sort of fuzzy around the edges. Picnic at Hanging Rock would do it later. Yes, Picnic at Hanging yeah. Rock. Although it's not American, but that's got like yeah. a similar dreadful vibe to it that's yeah that you feel like you're being pulled into this dream it's mag- it's horrifically Ooh, magnet. i like that yeah. magnet horror <laughs> how do they work magnet, there's your genre magnet horror <laughs> i like it uh, okay i want to bring us into john hancock for a second because this wasn't mm. supposed to be his only film uh, as i mentioned earlier he was given jaws 2 and it would have been yeah. a very different film i was talking to alicia about this it's a movie which sounds fascinating but not good <laughs> so it's it's understandable <laughs> yeah. why why it it did not go forward, but apparently at that point Amityville would have been a ghost town, which is why you have that vibe. Um, and it also it featured a lot more uh, Brody's wife um, being the hero. She would have to go out and destroy the shark in this one. It didn't have the the same kind of. Denouement. Which happens in Jaws. That is 4, correct. Yes, but in that one, the shark knows how to use the phone. So there are yes, some issues there. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, it, it just it would have been this like weird ethereal, um, the death of the small town sort of vibe, which is so weird that they would think that was the way to go from the blockbuster element that Jaws created. But what did they expect if they were going to hire John Hancock? Because <laughs> did they not watch Jessica? It's like <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I guess so much of why they thought of him and Spielberg in particular and the Universal execs is, you know, these scenes in Jessica, a lot of them take place mm. in the water. And so you would have this woman, it's a dummy that's, I think, in Cat Correction, if I'm wrong, it's the dummy in their motel swimming pool is actually what they ended up Yeah, using it's just to, a like, dummy. They couldn't, the like, because they had real problems woman, yeah, you, with that. Yeah, they have no budget. Yeah. And they're like, what can we do? We'll just stick but a dummy it's under there. Is so scary because yeah. you're in it they're in a rowboat and they look in the water and there's this red-headed well i mean it's supposed to be the the marie claire costello character emily in a wedding dress like just some floating gauzy it's it's terrifying. horrible it's really and horrible. so i think that it's one of the scariest sequences i've ever seen i was telling <laughs> becky this is this might get edited out but recently um a tree fell on our street took out the power just like the other day no power at night like nothing one of the hottest days of the year no air conditioning no fan and I sat on my little fire escape watching this film on my laptop with a camera. <laughs> Which is <laughs> how it like, should be watched. <laughs> why? Why did I do it? Why? Because I had to, but why? Anyway, um, the water sequences, it makes sense to me why someone's like, well, what is Jaws? It's all about illusion and cheap um, special effects that, you know, aren't really, it's all about what you don't show that makes things scary. And I think that Hancock did that really well. And that's why this film is so scary for all the things that are not shown fully to the viewer. So I get the thinking, but yeah, it doesn't make sense to get a hippie guy. But it also, why he didn't actually identify with hippies. This was what he said, because he was asked about that. And um, he was like, well, I, I was like a little bit too old to be with be with the hippies, but I kind of understood them. But he thought, you know, he said even within the summer of love, he knew it was all coming to an end. So he was like very cynical about it all. And so I guess he was yeah. more addressing that, like the end of the summer of love, the sort of destruction of the, the innocent. Yeah. And yeah. um, but he did come from off Broadway, where you also have people like Andy Milligan working. In Andy Milligan's take on Gothic is also very strange and wonderful. But people that were really out to revolutionise theatre, sort of coming into film with these really weird ideas. So I think the one thing I love about Jessica, outside of the whole setup and how moody it is in the cinematography, is that the the kind of acting style in it is it's almost like watching a kitchen sink drama with all these sort of internal Mm -hmm. politics and it's got this very naturalistic way where they feel like they're ad-libbing and I think they were just ad-libbing a lot of the time so it's got this kind of vibe like it's some improv exercise from a load of 
hippie counterculture method actors who were just <laughs> going yeah. for it. You just don't ever see that anywhere. The, the, the movie really hinges mm. on that Zora Lampert performance because she really swings so mm. wildly that you don't know which direction she's going in emotionality. Like she'll be really over the top with joy. Like I've never seen someone so enthusiastic about chickens in my life. And then she'll get like really down and really upset. And you can kind of understand why she, why they would be concerned about her mental health. It's interesting. What's it say? Frail as the leaves that shiver on a spray. Like them, we flourish. Like them, decay. See? They're less frightened already. Yes, but I would also say that there's so much misogyny yeah. in this film. I, I also think that idea of like she has to prove to these men, one is her husband and one is, I guess, a mutual friend, that she's sane. So it leads to this exuberance and this like overreaction of joyfulness that's just not real. Um, because that is probably how most women with mental illness, and we don't even know if she really did no. have a mental illness. That's the thing. Like this marriage, it also sucks. seems like she was grieving her father. <laughs> so understandably, weird shit yeah, would be going down. So yeah, it's that that that's mentioned for sure. Yeah. Um, Kat, was what was your take on the male characters? I think it does follow in that tradition of the yellow wallpaper in the, and it does tie into Blood Spattered mm-hmm. Bride in that you have this complete infantilization of Jessica as the wife. She's like de-sex. She's treated like this little child that has to be protected. They're going to take her away yeah. from the city in any excitement. And so she has to respond to that and play this role of a child and so she's sort of lost all her autonomy by the time we even meet her and she's constantly questioning herself um i think in a wider thing though just as women even when we don't suffer mental illness we we constantly are put under surveillance for what we say and how we think and we do tend to kind of look more into screen you know doubting ourselves and was it really that and so it, it weirdly Jessica like kind of tackles that which is like a big feminist subject at the moment talking about women being believed in the context of abuse and yet John Hancock is just using it because he thinks it's interesting you know he's <laughs> taking it from Shirley Jackson and uh, and just thinks this is a really fascinating subject but w- women t- traditionally like all those um gothic melodramas are about women not being believed and doubting themselves so kind of covertly they were talking about this thing that women weren't allowed to talk about which is i think is amazing this idea like rebecca is a good one you know she's and is this ghost haunting the house haunting the house or you know is she just too sensitive and it's mm-hmm. it's the same sort of thing maybe maybe mrs danvers is just trying to help her be a <laughs> before she explodes the house but the husband in this i mean god he is i mean he's brilliant but he's also just a selfish pig and yeah he isolates her like she's gone through this breakdown and he takes her out of the city from all of her friends puts her in the country with you know with with one other guy and that's like one of the first signs of abuse right is that you you isolate someone and then he starts to get interested in emily and he's kind Mm -hmm. of flirting with her right under jessica's nose which is when she starts to get very nervous but she has to there's, like, there's a very early scene where he is Doug, the husband, is all over Emily and they're singing that song. Mm-hmm. And she's having to sit there and laugh along, even though she's not comfortable with it. And you can hear him monologue and just in case she looks too hysterical or, you know, so he's, mm-hmm. yeah, he is just, I wouldn't say he's as nasty as the husband in Blood Spat Bride, but he's very selfish and he... I think the way he looks at Jessica is like she's like a kid, like she doesn't even know her own mind. And it's just, I find it so insidious. And one of the things that really adds to the creepy level of it, because you are with Jessica, like we are with Jessica the whole time. Like for better or for worse, whatever it is that she sees, we're we're literally in her head. Like we're in her head as we hear her thoughts. For the first time in months, I'm free. Forget the doctors. Forget that place. I'm okay now. 
And so we can't feel anything other than like total belief for Jessica. And it, it makes a really interesting dynamic. You have other films that do that, like, say, um, The Perfume of the Lady in Black, which is a Jallo. It's about uh, trauma and it's more of a mystery thing, but you don't actually know until the end. You're not in that protagonist mindset. Whereas Hancock, he brings us into her head in, and tells us this is all a flashback, this is her story, um, and then uses that to kind of manipulate us in a way because we see everything through Jessica's eyes, like how she responds, her mm -hmm. husband's indifference and then his annoyance and then finally the fact he may be having an affair. Emily is also the only other every, woman in the film. Yeah. The town is entirely men. <clears throat> yeah, it's no other women. It's bizarre. There's, well, there's yes, the yeah. there's the girl that is mute. Yeah. So there's the who you know is it's hard because she looks just like Emily, a younger version of Emily. There's a really what was I found really creepy about Jessica is its um, doppelganger effect. Mm. I felt a very big doppelganger effect uh, between Emily and this character. Yeah, but you're right in the town because I kind of questioned that myself yeah. when I said it earlier in the podcast. Is it all men? It's all men. Yeah, they don't have wives. There's no woman in a rocking chair on the porch. There's no woman at the general store. It's all these decrepit men. And if it's all men, and you and it is kind of insinuated they may be in league with Emily, like a weird mm -hmm. harem of elderly men. I'm not sure what's going on there. <laughs> Where have the women gone? Like, what is going on? And there? they are grumpy, grumpy <laughs> men. They do not like these these young people's yeah. first or their actions. <laughs> although the the antique stealer is quite fond of them, although he dies horribly, or does he? So yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that is exactly where we're going to wrap things up today. Cat. Thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure oh, no, to have you. Tell you. people how they can find you and your work, because there's a lot of it. You can find me on diabolikemagazine.com, where I'm the editor-in-chief. And you can also find me on Patreon at Catalinger's Confessions of a Cine Slut. Um, and I do <laughs> a lot of stuff over there. Or buy my Daughters of Darkness <laughs> book, <laughs> please. <laughs> Three years of my life invested in that, but... Yeah, so I get to be here today, though, and talk about it. So it was absolutely you. a pleasure. We'll we'll have you back later. Oh. Don't worry. And, yeah. and Alicia Fletcher, <laughs> thank you so much once again. Thank you. I do want to mention, and we don't have to, we don't have time to talk about that. Hancock did eventually direct the 1980 film Prancer, which is a Christmas <laughs> film uh, that we have on Hollywood Speed soon, I believe. So, um, uh, yeah. Also, we should probably shout out as well that uh, Kayla Janice uh, from our Ilsa episode that we discussed uh, wrote a book called House of Psychotic Women that um, very much references Let's Scare Jessica to Death mm -hmm. uh, in a number of points. So if you are more interested about that film as well, please go buy Kayla's book because it's excellent. Just buy that book anyway. Both your yeah, books, Kat and Kayla. Very, you cannot, cannot go wrong. <laughs> Can't go wrong. All right. And you can join us next week as we are joined once again by Rue Morgue's very own Andrea Subasetti. As we're going to look at two very, very controversial films. It's The Devils and Macbeth. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Alicia Fletcher and Kat Ellinger as guests. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. 